to the Driven by Diversity podcast. I'm Mariana. And I'm Steph. And every week we shine the spotlight on underrepresented groups in the world of racing. Our guests share their journey into the sport and also delve into what diversity and inclusion means to them. We hope that we can provide you with real role models who you can relate to and who represent you. And more than that, that you'll feel inspired and encouraged to know that you can make it in motorsport, no matter your background. You'll probably know him from some of F1's more recent digital content as a technical analyst. But in fact, this guy has been on the motorsport scene for a lot longer than you think. Wearing many, many hats, he's first and foremost a motor racing technical journalist, but also commentator, engineering and technology consultant, and even a counsellor for his local constituency. Let's not forget he's also tried his hand at racing, both rally and single-seaters. Looking to diversity, our guest is only too aware that there is a lack of representation on all counts in the industry, having been on the receiving end of some hurtful comments when it comes to race, both in his earlier days and even as recent as last year. This week, we are bringing you the absolute brain box that is Sam Collins. Sam, many people within the Formula One world will know you for your journalism within the sport, but you actually cover more than just F1. So tell us a bit more about what you do and the different series that you cover. If it's got an engine, and even if it hasn't, it's just got batteries and a motor, I'll probably cover it. I am a motor racing technology and a technology journalist in general. And that takes me, my actual first jobs were all in rallying. Then I came to Formula One and open wheel racing. I edited a NASCAR magazine. I was a commentator at Le Mans on Radio Le Mans for years and years. I'd love to get back to doing that, but um, unfortunately, calendar clashes mean I can't at the moment, though hopefully that will change. I hear Le Mans might move. Um, I'm the, um, until recently, well, I'll hopefully continue with it, um, Super GT's English language commentator, Super Formula's English language commentator, and I run a very, very small um, engineering and technology consultancy in Hertfordshire and work mostly on motorsport, high performance, automotive and mass transportation solutions, focusing on making things more environmentally friendly, which is something I quite enjoy doing. That sounds brilliant. And it sounds like you have a lot of coverage through the different series that you're involved in and the different the different bits that you write for and do you journalism for. But how did you actually get to this point in your career? What were the steps that led you here? Yeah, no, there was no plan. I never planned to do this. <laughs> I, all sort of teenage boys of a certain era and in certain place, I grew up wanting to be a Formula One driver or a fighter pilot. And I was a bit too tall to be a fighter pilot. And I was probably a bit too tall to be a Formula One driver. Um, a few centimetres taller than Lance Stroll. Uh, but I grew up in a place called Crystal Palace in, in South East London in England. And there was an old abandoned motor racing circuit there. And that sort of inspired me to sort of, I used to go riding my push bike around there when I was about 13 or 14 and just imagine what it would have been like racing cars going around it. And I'd watch Formula One on the telly on the BBC every weekend. And I'd read, you know, I'd spend all my lunch money from school on motor racing magazines and go to the secondhand bookshops and buy all these old 1950s and 60s Formula One books and magazines and read, I just read everything I could about motor racing. But at the same time, I was also really interested in old aeroplanes and old trains and all sorts of old machines. So I'd go into museums around London, Brooklyn, the Imperial War Museum, various science museum was my favourite. And I'd just pour over all of these machines and learn everything I could about how the machines worked. 
and it started to dawn on me as I got a bit older that I was actually more interested in the machine than the motor race. And that was a little bit unusual, everybody else. So while I did still want to be a Formula One driver, I wanted to be more like Rudy Ullenhout, who was the sort of lead engineer of the Mercedes Grand Prix team pre-World War II. And he was also a really well-accomplished motor racing driver. So I wanted to be able to design a, 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 a Formula One car and race it. No one had done that for years. But I think I was pr- probably more Giovanni Lavaggi than Rudy Ullenhout and probably not even as good as Giovanni because I, I, I did actually get into racing. I, I went off to college, studied automotive and motorsport engineering at a place called East Surrey College in Red Hill. They're still going. It's a really good course. Um, and that was when I was 16. So I opted not to do A-levels or AS levels or whatever they're called now. I didn't do that at school. Went off to just play with cars at college, much to the annoyance of my teachers. <laughs> and built my first racing car there. It was a Ford Fiesta Group N and raced it in the Ford Saloon Car Championship. Um, I never intended to race it. Uh, there was another guy, richer guy, who decided he was going to drive it, and he took it out for the first time at Castle Coombe and blew the engine. Oh, no. <laughs> I had a go at him and said, what are you doing? I've spent ages building that thing. And he said, if you think you can do better, you do it. So I did. <laughs> and, I, and, and a trophy I've got somewhere, I think it's in the bog, um, <laughs> nice. tells me I finished third in that the championship that year. I don't seem to remember being quick or competitive, but apparently I did. And then decided racing wasn't for me. I preferred rallying because it was faster and cooler. Um, a bit of gravel. I grew up on a gravel road, so I liked gravel, liked going sideways. Did a lot of night rallying, road rallying in England. Did some stage rallying as both driver and co-driver. Um, and then hit a few too many trees and decided that wasn't particularly safe and I probably should stop that activity because I probably wasn't talented enough to not be an accidental arboriculturalist <laughs> and um, <laughs> decided not to go rallying anymore. Uh, then I went back to racing, so I rented a car off a bloke called Alan, uh, Alan Harding, and it was a Formula V. I didn't really know what Formula V was, but it was single-seater racing and I fancied giving it a go. Got into this car at Silverstone, took it out of, having never driven a single seater of any sort before, took it out of the garage, spun it at every corner, (laughs) got black flagged, got annoyed at myself, (laughs) went home, then had a bath, decided that I was going to race the next day, actually, came back to the circuit, got a telling off for the clerk of the course, got into the car and went out and after the first lap decided to start racing. But on the way to the grid, now if you've ever been at a club race at Silverstone the cars all sort of line up in the the pit garages but you don't go forwards out of the pit garage onto the pit lane and drive out you go backwards into the paddock and have to drive around into a sort of dummy grid area so I was supposed to be following another car but a, a stock hatch or some other saloon car got in the way and I lost track of the car I was following and I got lost so I got lost on the internal service road to Silverstone for the single seat, drove out over the two bridges and was heading out towards the A4 in a single seat until I got told very sternly to go back. back where I came from. So eventually I found my way to the paddock, to this dummy grip, and everybody was like, where's he gone? And then I was sort of leaning there, sitting there, sort of quite stressed out in this cockpit before my first single seat race. And this, this Indian girl, who I've never seen in my life, comes walking over to the car and starts fiddling around between my legs. I don't know what on earth is this? Who the hell are you? And what are you doing to my gentleman part? 
And then she started shouting at me. And I was like, I've just been in person, you're already shouting at me. This is not very good. Her name was Lena Gade. And this was her first single-seater race as well. She was getting 50 to learn to be a race mechanic and for this bloke called Alan. So she was assigned me to help out as the worthless basket case of a driver. And I'd got my seatbelts on wrong, apparently. And she started shouting. Oh. Lena went on to have quite a successful career, winning Le Mans a few times. Um, so I think that with Audi. So I think it's fair to say she did a lot better than I did. I went out in the race and managed not to crash, but I did nearly hit the pit wall waving at a girl I was driving past <laughs> on the exit of a corner. Um so I decided after quite a lot of convincing and various different racing series and racing cars that I probably wasn't the best racing driver. But all the time I was working. So I went off to university and studied automotive engineering, dropped out of uni because I got offered a job to do pre be a press officer on some rallies that I was quite interested in. And I wasn't really enjoying the course at the time. And I wanted to, I should have really taken a year out, but never went back. Um, and then decided that actually I'd been offered a job working for Motorsport News, working with technical companies, convincing them to spend money with Motorsport News because we'd sell more gearboxes or we knew all the Welsh rally teams and we could get ProDrive to sell them to more bits and bobs selling adverts into the newspaper and stuff like that. Did it a little bit for Autosport. And then those two publications realised that nobody on their editorial teams had a competition licence all knew how a car worked so i found myself writing about club club motor racing in england and also just explaining to people in articles how cars worked and became a technical journalist sort of by accident and then race car engineering came and knocked on the door and i worked there for i think 10 11 12 years something like that just and that's how i got into formula one sort of through the back door because it's a the international bible of motor racing technology it was at the time and from that, we launched the NASCAR magazine. I got to go to all sorts of races, bizarre ones in Barbados, um, Malaysia, Japan. Um, so I really sort of started out in Japan as well. And obviously loads and loads of Formula One. And it became really good fun. And everything was going brilliantly until I sort of decided that I was a little bit bored of motor racing and decided to try politics. Um, failed to get elected as an MP, so came back to motor racing. And... Um, <laughs> Formula One management said we need someone to present uh, to carry on presenting the tech talk show which you sort of started a while ago and then got bored and went off and did politics <laughs> because you didn't sign your contract on time and you didn't seem that interested but now you need some money you're interested in so that's how the tech talk show that most of you have seen on YouTube and F1 TV came about but actually we started it two years earlier but I never signed a contract and then got bored and wandered off and did politics but, um, so yeah that's how I ended up where I am. Wow, you've definitely been through a lot and uh, as you could tell there, that tickled me a lot because I started crying laughing, but luckily this is a podcast so it's just audio and no one has to see that. Oh, um, I think you could advertise that on, you do, you do the Instagram bit. So you can <laughs> I don't think that'll be making its way to Instagram, unfortunately, <laughs> listeners, but... <laughs> Ariana, you've got your own Instagram, I think we need to put this out. <laughs> oh dear, great stories, I love it. But it definitely sounds like you have so much experience in so many different areas, which is brilliant. And as well, having that experience as a driver, even though, you know, you hit a few walls, <laughs> didn't put your seatbelt on right. You know, you've got you've got all of those um, 
you've garnered and gathered all of that knowledge and expertise and experience that enables you to pick up those little nuances and what is so important in becoming a good journalist or a good analyst in in your field so that's really great and I know that you mentioned that you grew up in Crystal Palace and there was uh, a motor racing track there and you know you'd go around on your bike around the area and sort of that's how you became exposed to the world of motor racing was it that that really was the initial thing that attracted you first of all to the world of machinery the world of of motor engines and motor racing or was there something else potentially or or, you know a a group of factors that came together to um, spark your interest it was was a group of things it really was Uh, my parents didn't have a car so I was probably doing a bit of early rebellion by getting into cars because they were sort of ecology people and weren't really into it I mean I say were they're still around Um, my dad was a bookseller antiquarian bookseller so I used to get dragged around stately homes and tumbled down mansions across the southeast of England to look at old mouldy books and um, learn quite a lot about a lot about the antiques business and auction business but you know to stop being misbehaving in these houses to be a, sort of as a reward I used to get taken off to science and engineering museums which I think thoroughly bored my dad but I was fascinated by I was to go on a steam train or something like that that's what I was really into I remember always wanting to go to York on these sort of book hunts, if you like, because you had the big National Railway Museum there as well as the Viking Centre, because that they were really fascinating things for me to go to. I couldn't, I had no interest in these books. And to from that, I just sort of started to develop this real love of things that just are made of metal and the process of it. And the fact that there's a real artistry about machinery and engineering. The ancient Greeks, I mean, this is is a line I always overuse, but the ancient Greeks didn't really differentiate between art and engineering. They just had one word for it. And because I don't think engineering, engineering is art that solves a problem, but it's still art. And when you see some of the detail on modern racing cars, my word, I mean, that is pure artistry. I mean, that is Da Vinci. It was a great example because he was famous as an artist. But you look at his engineering solutions, fascinating. It's the same thing. So I think it's really, I'm I'm a creative screaming to get out of a really boring person. That's that's what I put it down to. That's an interesting way to to label yourself, but okay, we'll go with that. Um, as Steph just mentioned, you've had experience of both behind the wheel and obviously on the journalism side. But seeing as the journalism is what you're currently doing and where you've realised your strengths lie, um, what would you say to people out there who might be interested in following in your footsteps and getting into journalism? Obviously, you're a technical journalist. So is there different advice you'd give for people that are interested in the technical side compared to the more broad, just motorsport journalism? Yeah, absolutely. So if you're looking to get into journalism at all, a lot of people make the mistake, looking at motorsport journalism, a lot of people make the mistake of trying to go straight in at the top. And if you were wanting to write about football, you wouldn't, or soccer if Americans, if there's Americans listening, you wouldn't expect to decide to write about football and then be an accredited journalist at the World Cup final. That's a ridiculous premise. But too many people are coming into Formula One from nothing and expecting to be an accredited Formula One journalist. It, it doesn't work like that. If you want to be taken seriously and you want to have that knowledge base in your subject area, and I'm using motor racing as an example, you need to start at the bottom. You need to work your way up through the system, not because you may not be able to immediately get opportunities at the top. You possibly can. You might get lucky. 
you don't if you go straight in at the top you won't have that basis it's like jumping in and doing a degree in a subject if you haven't read a single book on it you can't do it you need to be doing those really low level it could be stock car racing at wimbledon if that was still a thing or a really cold wet freezing driving rain formula ford race at pembrey or or snetterton that's where you need to start you need to start right at the bottom and work your way up i started off in welsh forests getting covered in mud and gravel after slogging out to the stage for hours uh when i was working at motorsport news on the ancro series and then you start and i started to work up from there and you know i was covering stock hatch 750 motor club stuff at donnington park and getting up ridiculously early in the morning going halfway across the countryside to see a club race i mean it doesn't it's not the romantic sexy monaco grand prix world that you see in formula one but if you don't do those early steps, you are not going to be prepared to go into F1, which is the pinnacle of the sport. And it goes across to the same in any industry. If you come in and want to be, you know, the top political journalist in Britain, you can't just turn up at Downing Street with a notebook or a laptop. It, it doesn't work like that. You can't just do a blog and go straight into the top. You have to work your way up through the system. And you will get noticed because the magazines and editors are always looking for writing talent because journalists and senior journalists in particular are deeply lazy people <laughs> they'd much rather pay a freelancer to do the work than do it themselves so if they have got a good quality reliable freelancer that person's going to get work as long as they don't price themselves out of the market which some try to but if you can if you can dive in and just say look i can write this piece for you i'm not going to do it for free do not do it for free i'll it, but i'll do it cheap get out there and do it and I've pro you'll probably ask me why you shouldn't do it for free. Look, there's 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 a brilliant um, Twitter sort of channel called For Exposure. Oh, yeah. there's, loads of, there's loads of people out there who offer to give you uh, exposure for writing a really long piece of commissioned work. The key there is work. If it's work, you should be getting paid. The only person you should write for free is for yourself or for a charity. So sometimes I write stuff and put it up on a blog or I might do some beer favours for mates. But other than that, you've got to pay me to work. And it's always been that way. If you're not getting paid, someone's exploiting you because somebody else is getting paid for it. So do not go fall into the trap of just doing free stuff. There is paid work out there, but you've got to be good enough to do it. And that could mean building up your own blog, building up your own profile but don't do it at the top, start at the bottom and work up. That is the biggest, best advice. And actually the journalism qualification, certainly in the UK, wouldn't bother. I'd go and specialise in something and then come back with an expertise because that's what the readers really value is expertise, not a journalism qualification. The sub-editors will always work out your grammar and your spelling and your language. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. That's very interesting, actually. And it's a good, uh, a good angle to come from because we've not actually had advice along those lines um on this podcast before so definitely take note of that um linking to this are there any sort of important key qualities or characteristics that you would look for in a good motorsport journalist and are there any examples of of really great motorsport journalists out there already that, that you perhaps look up to or see these qualities in there's a lot of brilliant journalists out there. Uh, Will Buxton is actually a fantastic journalist, 
but he doesn't write enough. I mean, everything he writes is great, but he doesn't do it enough. He's did a, he's a brilliant book and he's done some fantastic articles in for various magazines, but hardly ever does it. Marshall Pruitt is one of the hardest working journalists in motor racing at the moment, up with Chris Medland. I think he's another super hard working journalist. And Chris does a huge amount of output. Marshall does a huge amount of output. Marshall in particular is a re- can write really beautiful articles. One thing I would say is a lot of journalists out there can do such beautiful work if they sit down and spend the time to do it rather than filling the quota of another story every every hour on a website. That's not the right way to do journalism. Do it properly and do it slowly and do it once. That's better quality journalism. And there's some really good journalists out there. So my biggest sort of advice to you, to anybody who wants to get into journalism in motorsport is being insomniac. <laughs> there's there's going to be a lot of sleep deprivation. You probably think like a Formula One Grand Prix weekend will start at, you know, maybe 10 a.m. on a Friday and you're finished with free practice, free with the press conference and stuff. That's probably done by 4.30. I'm pretty, I'm pretty lightweight at the moment because we're doing telly, so I don't have to write it down a story and file it normally. So, yeah, I'll start just about an hour before the session and finish about three hours afterwards. There's guys after that session, just after a normal Grand Prix weekend, who'll be up till midnight writing copy. And then they've got to get up at four or five in the morning for the next thing. And that's usually when they're staying in a really crappy hotel that sometimes sharing a room with somebody who snores, definitely with bed bugs. (laughs) usually with cockroaches because the, the money you're earning well. not going to be enough to get the good hotels it's not pleasant then you're having to schlep a long way to the circuit the press rooms are never always that some of them are lovely but most of them are not that nice uh, certainly some of them are particularly aromatic on a hot weekend uh, and there's only so many bogs for so many people um, it's not glamorous do not be sucked into the trap that it's super glamorous super exciting it is super exciting at times, but you have to work super hard and super long hours. I remember one uh, pre-season testing. So just going to the first day of testing, we were at Circuit of Catalonia and I was staying, I'd managed somehow to stay in the poshest hotel that's going uh, for the first two nights. So I don't, don't know how that ended up, but I ended up in this posh hotel and loads of drivers and team members were in the we were in the same hotel and one of the drivers physios didn't have much to do on the first day of testing because his driver wasn't in action that day and so I found myself in the bar putting back a few beers with him and there were some engineers <laughs> from McLaren some engineers from Ferrari but I'd been up till about one in the morning in that bar with quite a few beers in me headed upstairs knowing that I had to get up at 6am to get to the circuit for the first rollout out of the garage the first cars to be showed off and I got there and I sort of just settling to bed. I thought, I'll just check what's going on, on in the world of motor racing. And the, the, one of the cars had launched. It was the, uh, the McLaren. The, the launch photos had leaked. So suddenly, because mm-hmm. at the time I was work, running a website, suddenly I had to get those photos. Then I had to upload them. I had to write a whole article about those cars and what the design was and all those details that I normally do. By that point, by the time I finished that, it was about 3.30, 4.30 in the morning. But I've got to get up in two hours. So two hours sleep when your mind's still sort of really cranking over is quite difficult. So I'm not sure how much sleep I got that night. Then the longest day of the year, the first day of testing, when you have all of those new car launches, all of those interviews to do, then you've got to transcribe them all. Then you've got to update everything. So the next night, I don't think I got to bed till five in the morning and then repeat and you keep that going. So that you can stay in a posh hotel, but it doesn't mean you're going to be sleeping because you've got so much work to do. And that's probably the biggest challenge for a lot of people coming into it 
I don't think people realize how hard the work you have to do to be mm. at the, the required level in Formula One, at least. And I suspect it's the same if you were doing the Olympics or Tour de France or anything like that. I mean, if you want to be at the top level of sports journalism, you have to put huge amounts of hours in and it's not always nice. That sounds really, really tough. And like you said, definitely one of the challenging aspects of being a journalist. But moving on to maybe something more positive, away from the cockroaches <laughs> and, you know, the sleep deprivation, <laughs> what would you say are some of your favourite parts of your job as a journalist? And on top of that, seeing as we're about to go into the season, what are you most looking forward to in the 2021 season? In a normal year, a non-pandemic year, yes. which seems like ancient history now, unfortunately, <laughs> my favourite things about being a Formula, Formula One journalist, food. The food is brilliant. Oh, you get to okay. eat like all sorts of different things as you go around the world. It's not just the teams. Like if if you're this is where I do sound like it's a little bit glamorous. If you go to <laughs> Ferrari for lunch, you always get the most wonderful pasta in the motorhome there. Red Bull always do these funny little finger food things, but they're all super tasty. McLaren do sort of old fashioned <laughs> grub, and that, but then when you're at the track in the evening, because you do, even though you still got work to do you still have to go out to eat. It means every night you're going to a restaurant and you get to have, have some really nice restaurant food. And, you know, mil pasta in Milan at Monza is always great. <laughs> you know, you go to, you know, an izakaya near Suzuka that you get fantastic, like, yakitori and other Japanese specialities. So as you go around the world, the food is amazing. And then you go to Silverstone, you feel just generally <laughs> disappointed and ashamed of yourself. Um, but the... Just, it, that's one of my favourite things. What am I most looking forward to though this year? This year's going to be great. I'm already, I'm already buzzing about it because with the the, the emergency rules for 2021 Formula One season, we've ended up in this funny situation where it looks like two teams have turned up with new cars, which is AlphaTauri Alpha and Aston Martin. Everybody else has turned up with modified versions of old cars, and Alpine have got a two-year-old Renault uh, and how they develop those cars and how they've modified those cars into a season that is really quite long and there's a and it's the end of the rule set but with the aerodynamic testing restrictions they can still go all out on these cars because they can't put all the effort into next year's car it creates this really weird unpredictable and odd mix of cars in the in the championship and then we're going to a whole bunch of tracks that we either haven't been to to for two years or haven't been to at all you know, we're back to Monaco. That's going to be brilliant. Except I'm I'm not going, which is which is sad. Um, I'll be sitting in a hangar somewhere in 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 Kent. Um, <laughs> but we're also going to tracks like the Netherlands for the first time. Back to Zandvoort. Well, not Zandvoort isn't the first time in Formula One. First time in a long time without banking. New track, a new track in the Middle East. That's going to be interesting to see because nobody even knows what that looks like mm. yet. And I think the the Formula One camera staff are still trying to work out where to position cameras, let alone what the tr the track layout is. So it's going to be really interesting. And one of the positives of the sport that's come out from the pandemic is it's reintroduced unpredictability. Yeah. Uh, I would be very surprised if every race on the calendar took place as planned or on schedule. We've already seen Melbourne kick back to the end of the year. I think there's other tracks that are going to come and get involved. It wouldn't surprise me. Don't know where they're going to be. Well, I've got some ideas, Turkey. And I think... That, that, you know, we saw those really unusual, exciting races last year. I think there's going to be an element of that this year as well, as teams try to find their way. But also, it looks like we're going to get some sprint races later in the year. And that's going to be wild, because nobody's tried that before. 
So I mm-hmm. think 2021 is just going to be this weird 23-ish race adventure that nobody really knows what's going on. But at the same time, there's this, this big pulsing thing of 2022 coming around the corner, completely new rules and completely more crazy stuff. And then you've got Toyota and Honda looking at coming back and you've got... Um, Who's the other team? Audi looking at coming into the sport as well. So you've got all these new manufacturers hovering around on the outside of the sport who, if the regulations go the right way, they're going to dive in. You're going to start seeing new people in the paddock and things are all going to start getting a little bit more tense, a little bit more secretive. You're going to see all these innovations breaking through. That's going to be great. Yeah, I think we can all tell there that you're absolutely buzzing, like you (laughs) said, and you're definitely not alone. I cannot wait. And I know, Steph, you're the same for the season to get underway. As you said, I think the pandemic, of course, it was awful and we would rather it hadn't happened. But it has added this unpredictability that has at least spiced things up a little bit within Formula One, which is very exciting. But... Linking a bit to the season ahead, I guess, recently we saw Lewis Hamilton signed his contract with Mercedes and within his contract, other than the fact that it was one year contract, which obviously a lot of people were shocked about or worried about, um, he also has written into it that alongside Mercedes, there's a commitment from both sides to set up a joint charitable foundation to promote diversity and inclusion. What are your thoughts on that side of the sport and that arrangement that has been agreed? I love the sound of it. I wait to see the results. We we heard the Hamilton Commission got set up was over a year ago now. Still haven't really seen any results yet, have we? So it's good. The aims of it to increase um, STEM involvement, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, or as some people call it, STEAM, science, technology, engineering, art and mathematics. It's really an important thing I think Formula One needs to be, and motorsport in general, needs to be engaging with. And the fact that that Hamilton's idea is to try and engage with a more diverse pool of people, I think is fantastic and is really valuable to the sport. If you think engineering in particular and the sport itself is just limited to white people, then you're lim- limiting that talent pool. And that's stupid. Formula One has never been one to limit a talent pool. So widening that diversity for Mercedes is makes perfect sense because actually it's widening the talent pool. You widen talent pool, you get an advantage. Your cars go quicker because you have more devi- a, a more diverse workforce. It's a really simple equation. So it's really good to see him doing it. I'd love to see more teams taking action seriously. I know Mercedes have been doing some outreach work, but you know Formula One is predominantly the teams are based in the UK. Aside from Mercedes, I can't imagine many. I don't. I don't. Haven't seen many of the teams doing very, very much work to encourage STEM in the in the UK or in local areas. Formula One teams should be having demo cars and show cars going around schools every single week that the schools are actually open in this country, because it's a huge opportunity that's being missed by the sport. Formula One has a responsibility because people spend a huge amount of money on it. It's not just about you know, going off and racing 20, 20 cars around 23 tracks, you know, throughout each year. It's about technological development. If that technological development isn't feeding down into education, if it's not feeding down into the car manufacturer, then it's just a waste of time and petrol. So I think motor racing needs to do a lot better at that outreach work into schools. Now, I know in the city of Le Mans, the manufacturers and the racing teams based around there do a huge amount of work with the local community and their motor racing is part of the culture. Le Mans is famous for cars and the schools, you go to the schools there, they have racing people in the schools. 
that technical education is a big part of it. In Japan, they have a similar thing. Some of the schools around Utsunomiya, where Honda R&D is based, they have they have Super GT days. The teams come along and bring race cars, and the pupils get to go and speak to the engineers, look at the cars, demonstrate it up and down through their playground. We need to see more of that in the UK because I think a lot of kids, and it doesn't really matter what their backgrounds are, they don't know that Formula One isn't just a thing you see on TV a few weekends a year. They don't realise there's a whole engineering base behind it, that this is you know, the top level of engineering in the world. There is no higher level of engineering than Formula One. And I don't think kids see that. I don't think they see that as a career path. And even if you're not in Formula One, you could be in sports car racing, in touring cars. You could be the guy who designs the gearboxes and they love their job because I went to the university with a bunch of the guys who designed the gearboxes and they absolutely love what they do. So there is a huge amount of jobs there. I mean, you think Mercedes, in, well, pre-cost cap, Mercedes were employing two, 3,000 people across their two sites in, uh, in England, plus a few more in Germany. That's a lot of jobs and they're fun jobs and they're well-paying jobs. And yet we're not really advertising them as a career path. And actually we can do so much better. And that benefits the whole of society if Formula One has a good diverse engineering base. So Williams did some work to improve the energy efficiency of fridges in supermarkets. Yeah, I It sounds that. ridiculous, <laughs> but that, that benefits society. And then we all saw the fantastic work done on the ventilators to fight COVID uh, early last year. That Formula One teams were the only people capable of doing that. And they did do that. So Imperial College with Mercedes did that ventilator that's being designed, it's being used all across the world now. And they published the designs for that because that's not their core business. Ferrari did a lot of work in Italy, which I think hasn't really been talked about enough. So yeah, good engineering standard that comes out of Formula One benefits humanity. Formula One needs to be doing a damn sight more on reaching out to young people to encourage them into careers in engineering, not just Formula One, all of motorsport. Yeah, and not just engineering as well, because that probably is the side that's most sort of visible to the outside world who aren't potentially fans of F1. That's the side that people are most likely going to see because obviously you've got the cars and the machinery, etc. But it's also all of the other job functions that go into the it is a business, in, into making the business run. So yeah, definitely some outreach there. But we do have F1 in schools, Talk to us about F1 in schools, what you think that perhaps F1 could be doing better with F1 in schools to diversify the sport a little bit and to get young people thinking about making a career in this industry. Well, this is the thing about Formula One. Formula One is this global superpower. Everybody knows what Formula One is. You can go to all parts of, you go to distant parts of Africa and they are huge Formula One fans. You go to South America, huge Formula One. Anywhere you go in the world, Formula One has this just door opening power. I think Formula One in schools and schemes like it should be part of the national curriculum. And, and that's something in the UK which defines what everybody at every school learns. Um, it's dissimilar. It'll be the same thing in other countries as well. I think Formula One needs to use that lobbying power to make its outreach projects. Formula One in schools is a brilliant example of this. If you don't know what it is, go and look it up. Um, I think Formula One in schools really would benefit so many pupils to be able to get involved. And I've seen some of the crazy designs from last year, actually. I was on a call about a couple of days ago. And there are kids having a lot of fun with that, and they're really getting inspired. Bloodhound, um, the Land Speed Record Card, yeah. do a really good outreach project as well. I've done some work with them. You've got Formula Student for some of the, the university-level stuff. Formula Student has really shown, I mean, I think, I don't know how many, I think it's something like 10,000 students a year 
go through some degree of formal student process. That's now become essentially part of the curriculum if you're studying automotive or mechanical engineering at, at mm. degree level. There isn't, there's formalist schools, which is building up, but that needs to become, and it is international already, but it's only for a few schools in each country. It needs to be every school. So we really do have this opportunity. And again, I think Formula One, not just as the gov- you know FOM and the, the organisers as a sport, but I think the teams really need to raise their level of getting engaged and realising that it's great that you're going racing. It's great that you're doing stuff, but you could really boost what you're doing in the community. And actually, I think that makes the sport a whole lot more marketable. And it'll make them easier to get sponsors. Yeah, definitely. There is so much more that the sport can do as a whole community. Um, and I do feel like we should all be responsible for it because it is the sport that we're all involved with at the end of the day. And it's so important to catch kids when they're young and they're at that age where they're still soaking everything up and they want to get interested in lots of different things because that's when you draw the talent in from that age. And it takes time to build up the skills. As we said earlier in the conversation, it takes time and you need to pull people in when they're young and they're excited by it as opposed to, you know, as you get a bit older and <laughs> you're less willing to spend time finding out new skills and new talents that you that you might pursue. I want to delve in a little bit deeper into the actual diversity side of things and experiences and things like that. So in an article a few years ago with the Comet, I believe it was, you spoke about the fact that you and Lewis at one point were the only two black drivers in British motor racing back in the days where you were behind a wheel. Um, (laughs) Was that something that you yourself were conscious of, the fact that you were the only two black drivers? Or do you feel like in hindsight, you're now more aware of it because it is more of a spoken about topic at the moment? Or was it something that you were aware of or made to feel aware of maybe through the experiences you had? It cuts both ways. When I got involved, you know, in my world, Lewis was known about, but he was younger. Mm-hmm. That point, there was a point, I think Lewis was still in cars. I was still in, I was in cars. And I think I was the only black driver in the UK racing cars. You were noticed. I remember, you know, you walk into the paddock and people are looking at you. Not, not necessarily, host- there's not necessarily hostility, more curiosity, thinking, yeah. oh my word he's putting on overalls what the hell there's a black guy getting into a racing car and i remember i had a, i'd done an engine failure in the ford um at castle coombe circuit and so and that was in practice so rather than go home for some reason i decided to stick around and went and watched the race on the spectator bank and i wasn't wearing my overalls or anything i just sort of got my civvies on and i went and there were some people stood in front of me and i don't know if they knew i was there i suspect they probably did but I, I never really knew. And they were talking amongst themselves about different drivers. And they obviously knew that I was black. And they heard that, you know, I wasn't starting the race because the you know, commentator said something like, uh, you know, just isn't turning up to start the race. And they said, well, black people can't drive anyway. Fucking niggas always stealing cars anyway. They should be able to drive, but they can't do it. And I'm sitting there and I am sitting there listening to this going, Oh my word, this is what? I've never even heard such talk. I mean, Southeast London, if you try and said that where I grew up, I mean you you, you probably wouldn't be walking home if you, you know, said something. Yeah, like that. I'm from South London and I second that. Yeah, I mean <laughs> that's not that was not my experience because I came from a really diverse background. That level of racism was new to me. Yeah, that you know, almost provincial racism. And that's driven by ignorance as well as hate and I found what I found in motor racing was there was a lot of ignorance but not hate the people at that time people were welcoming my presence didn't really challenge 
people's experiences and there's some companies and you know certain companies one of which was elf lubricants um well i think were quite enlightened they saw there was a black driver and decided to throw money at me to help me out shell then it was always oil companies actually shell then decided to get on bolden's board and sponsored me as well i found it very easy to get sponsors and and backing because i was something different you know i was novel lewis came along and that sort of novelty value sort of went away a bit and you know he was talented so he was the one that people wanted to sponsor which is probably the right thing to do um (laughs) And Lewis came along and I saw the same with him because he was quick and took it seriously. And also because he was from a working class background and I'm very middle class. um, There was a lot more hostility for him. The hostility came through karting. You could see that, but you could see what an unpleasant, toxic environment karting was at the time. And Lewis was coming through that as somebody who was different and competitive. They hated him. Some of the language you see directed at him. Even when he was in Formula Renault, I remember being in the paddock at one of his races at Brands Hatch and people were coming up to me saying, look, you can see he's cheating. He's the only car that's got flame coming out of his exhaust going into Paddock Hill Bend, the first corner. And I said, that's possibly because he's going a bit faster than everybody else, not that he's cheating. Yeah, there was all, everybody was always trying to accuse him of cheating or he only got the good drives because he was black. I mean, it was really unpleasant that all sort of started to drop away over time. And I think the hostility dropped away a little bit. And I noticed it more. The racism was coming more from, not from British journalists or the majority and British people in the paddock. Motor racing is was really a meritocracy. I didn't real, really feel I was anything different. But the foreign journalists were very different. And some journalists, we know... There's one well-known, prominent journalist who refuses to speak to anybody who isn't white and doesn't like non-white people. That person is still actively working in Formula One at the moment. Um, There are other journalists who sometimes it says they just don't know the correct language to use. They don't know what's acceptable and what's unacceptable because it's not their first language. And that's just, it's not even ignorance. That's just, you know, they just haven't been told. And then there's some people who've come from backgrounds that there aren't non-white people in, and they don't know how to deal with that. So they learn about that. And that, and that's the nature of being an international sport and traveling. People come from different backgrounds and have different, well, different beliefs. And some of them need to be challenged and some of them just, you know, are beyond challenge. And that was something I found quite difficult. But then when Colin Kaepernick first took the knee in America, Lewis had always made a few comments about that going back. And I think in that same article you're referencing in the comment, I was talking about Lewis taking the knee and saying, I hoped he did take the knee. And he didn't at that first US Grand Prix at Austin. Uh, and it was just after Colin Copernic had take, started taking the knee and Lewis was talking about the history of why taking a knee is such an important gesture of protest. I don't know the background of that, and I'd love to ask him, but I've not had the opportunity yet in the right environment to say, why didn't he take the knee at that first opportunity in the States? Because I think it would have sent a really strong message. My suspicion is there were people around him telling him not to do it, not to get involved, um, because he clearly wanted to. And then, you know, he looked at the injustice that goes on around the world and used his platform in a really positive way, um, especially in the wake of the death of George Floyd. That really woke up a lot of people. But at the same time as waking people up to 
the racism that is inherent in a lot of societies in the world, particularly against black people, but not exclusively. What it also did was it really kicked a hornet's nest. Those unspoken yeah. comments that I hadn't heard in motorsport for years were all coming back out because there was the, what some people now call the woke lobby, which is nonsense, just the sensible people who were anti-racist and wanted to do something about the ra- the problem of racism around the world. People like Lewis, people like the Mercedes team who've done a brilliant job with it. And then there were the people who felt aggrieved by that and then they all clubbed together and then they felt empowered by one another to be overtly racist. And so I was, I'd been doing technical videos. I'd worked on tech talk stuff, not just for Formula One, done ESPN, I'd done Sky Sports. I'd done all sorts of stuff going back over the years. I wasn't new. It's fair to say I'm not new to motor racing. At the start of last season, Formula One decided finally to start using YouTube properly. And it was big success. People like the Formula One YouTube content. And they started uploading some of the technical videos that I do. And from the Austrian Grand Prix, and the comments are all still there. You can go back and look at them. You look at the Austrian Grand Prix comments, and, and they carried on all the way through the season, but the Austrian Grand Prix was the worst. The amount of people who questioned my, my qualifications to be in front of a camera talking about technical aspects of a car because of the colour of my skin. They just assumed I was only there because of the colour of my skin. I was the diversity hire. I was described that repeatedly. Other people said black people don't know anything about, aren't interested in cars or motor racing. You know, you, and there were far worse comments on there. And just there were people who disliked what I was saying because I was black. And there were various people saying, I don't like these videos because they've got a black person presenting it. Others were using sort of dog whistle techniques, like this guy, you know, oh, can't he tidy up his hair? You know, sort of stuff like this. I'm, I'm not tidying up my hair. That's down to me. That's my choice. If you knew anything about Afro hair and mixed race hair, you know this is normal. Yeah, so there's there's a, there was a lot of that going on. And some of those comments, I mean, the volume of those comments, there were hundreds of them. And that did carry on all season. It dropped off through the season. What I found really heartening were the fans who'd seen my previous work, who knew where I, you know, followed F1, been F1 TV subscribers from before the start of 2020. They knew that I was involved with F1 long before Black Lives Matter became a big issue in motorsport. So they knew my background. They were defending me on that, on the chat and on the comments on Facebook and on Twitter. And actually, a big eternal thanks to those fans because they knew they were respecting, they were beginning to fight that fight. And that's where those Lewis had drawn those battle lines and Lewis is winning, which is brilliant to see. BLM was, I hope, one of the final big battles for racial equality. I fear it's not. I fear there's still an awful long way to go. And I, I saw comments from, I think it was in the, it was either in something by Bill Lester, who was a NASCAR driver, or from the, in the Willie T. Ribs documentary, talking about, you know, society has the same problems over and over again. If you look at the complaints from the 1960s, this is the same arguments we're having again now. You know, society hasn't moved on. And I hope they're wrong, but I fear they may be correct. So yeah, the the current level of racism in motor racing is the highest I've ever experienced, but the level of anti-racism in motor racing is also the highest I've ever experienced. Part of me wants to go back to how it was, where having a black guy in the paddock was a little bit novel, but no one really gave a toss. But now, actually, you're not just doing it for you, you're doing it for 
the next generation, the kids coming up, people in parts of the parts of the world that motor racing's never reached. That's why it's important to get rid of racism. And also, we're a world championship. Racism really should be beneath us. Yeah, we're at a state now where things are definitely polarised. But as you said, we have to continue sort of pushing forward with it because we're at that point where we're trying to make a lasting change for the generations to come. But that does pose an interesting question because as we've said, the thing that sort of sparked that divide and the conversation has been Lewis Hamilton. And it is likely that he's going to retire, you know, within the next few years probably. And then he'll be gone from the sport. So what do you think happens then? What does the sport do then to keep the conversation going? Because there's no guarantee that obviously Lewis is going to like stick around as actively involved as he is now because he's not in, on the track every weekend. But what does the sport do to continue that conversation, to continue moving forward when one of the most pivotal spokespeople won't be there anymore? Yeah, I think Formula One's in a really difficult situation. Motor racing, not so much, but Formula One is in a really difficult situation there because when Hamilton has gone... It's it's almost a monoculture again. I mean, you've got Jack Aitken, who's who's half Korean, and then I think uh, there's a couple of other drivers with some different ethnic backgrounds, but they're all mixed. And generally, if you look at more, it's a bunch of white guys going racing again, and that's that's a really backward step for the sport. As I said, it's a world championship. Surely, the drivers, the big stars of the sport, need to represent the world. There are some really talented young drivers coming up. Sauber has one on his books, uh, a young Nigerian, American Nigerian, an Igbo guy. Um, like we we call ourselves the Chooks. So he, uh, there's a Chook coming up through um, through the karting ranks. He looks really talented. There's a few other talented drivers coming up, but they're still five, six, ten years away from even having a shot at F1. It's a real shame because Formula One is actually behind the curve on this and European motor racing is behind the curve on this. You may have seen in America, NASCAR started many years back, something called the drive for diversity. That resulted Mm -hmm. in Bubba Wallace coming into the sport. And obviously last year was a big year for him, but it wasn't just Bubba Wallace. There's a few other black drivers now coming up through the NASCAR ranks. There's a couple of black drivers in NASCAR trucks. One of them's better than the other, but that's what you'll see. You'll start seeing some black drivers who get up those ranks and fail, but at least they're getting there. But I look at F3, F2, it's that white monoculture. And that's a real concern of mine. Not wanting to sound too doom and gloom, but I think motor racing internationally is going to take a little bit of a step back um, on this battle and a backward step. It's not going to be positive because once Hamilton has retired, there's no one to fill those really quite big boots now. And the sport will have to work very hard to try to fill that void without a star to fill that void and wait for the next young black or Asian or hopefully black woman or Asian woman to come up and fill that void. And we're, you know, there's no sign of that. I mean, the, the highest ranked non-white driver that I can see who's female that really has a chance of getting to F1 at the moment is Juju Noda, uh, the Japanese driver. She looks um, pretty strong to get in. But Japanese drivers are, you know, they're sort of accepted in the community and always have been. You know, there's the, the racism towards Japanese people, it exists, definitely. But it's not as strong. It's not It's not a barrier in the way it is to black people or Asian people or people from, from, from some other ethnicities. Um, and also, I'd quite like to see Formula One doing a bit more. And I, I say Formula One, it's interchangeable with the whole of motor, motor racing community. Do some more work on not just diversity, racial diversity. Yeah, Black Lives Matter is a big deal and it's important. 
but we do need to see some drivers from different backgrounds. We've had Indian drivers in Formula One. Motor racing is enormous in India and the subcontinent. So where are all those Indian drivers coming up? So we need to work with them. There's a few coming through. There's one who I know is looking for a drive in Super Formula this season. So hopefully he gets through. But we also look at, need to look at other forms of diversity. Gender diversity is a massive issue in motor racing and engineering. Yeah, there, there are loads of good, talented female engineers. And you can just see the work of people like Ruth Buscombe. I mean, she's a high profile one, but there's loads in the teams. If you take a walk through the paddock, mechanics as well. Uh, Aston Martin, as they're now called, so I nearly said Racing Point. Uh, <laughs> a really talented female mechanic. She's not very keen on the limelight, but she's out there, and she really, she's exactly the example of person that you know you want to be promoting. It is a sport for everybody. You know, if you've got the ability, you can do Formula One. Whether you've got the ability or not is a different question. But if you're good enough, F1 will accept you ultimately because you can make a car faster, and everybody respects a winner, even if they don't like them. Um, but I think what well, I'd like to see somebody in Formula One coming from, you know, a different gender background. That would be quite interesting to see how the sport handled that. I think there's a lot of people who'd struggle with um, a trans driver or a non-binary driver or an out, out, outright gay driver. You know, that has not been known in modern Formula One. There have been gay drivers in the past, but they've either been in the closet or just been talked about behind the garage and people were rude about them and they don't just don't get the opportunities. Matt Bishop, I think you've spoken to him already. I think he's the most prominent out gay person in Formula One at the moment. And, you know, he's the press officer, which is one of the most senior roles in an F1 team for Aston Martin. That's going to do some real good for the sport, actually. You know, having someone who is an out and out gay person in a prominent role in the sport. And I think that's fantastic. But I'd like to see more of it. Formula One ultimately needs a gay or trans driver, probably both. And I can't see that happening anytime soon, but I wish it would. Yeah, it's no secret that the there is such a lack of representation across the board in Formula One and even in motorsport in general. I mean, we were speaking to someone previously on the podcast and, you know, we it's, it's very clear that there's never really been the representation of anyone from the LGBTQ plus community. And perhaps we need that sort of exposure for people to know who come from the same community to know that, you know, it's it's a welcome and safe environment and they can really see themselves in that environment as well and in this industry. But going back to what you said as well, sort of more on, on the race and gender side of things, coming up through the ranks, Formula 2, Formula 3, there's not really anyone that is going to be able to replace Lewis Hamilton in that way in, in, in being that figure that really stands for diversity, inclusion, equality, equity, all of that kind of stuff that's really going to be able to drive it forward as he has been doing. And that is quite worrying. It's it's a bit concerning. But put aside all of that doom and gloom, we we obviously, we, we love this industry. We want people to come into it from all different backgrounds. We want the industry to be really diverse. What would you say to people from underrepresented backgrounds to make them feel that they do have a rightful place in motorsport, in F1, and they do have that value that they can bring and they will be welcomed. What I would say is, look, if you think you're good enough, you think you've got the talent, even if you've got the inkling that you might have the talent, but maybe you haven't got the confidence to go with it, give it a go, get stuck in. Don't go straight for the top though. Start at the bottom, get stuck in, learn the world. Unfortunately, grow a thick skin and don't get put off by being told, being rejected. 
you know i mean it reminds me a little bit of being a 14 year old uh, at school disco rejection is going to be quite regular for me <laughs> but actually you've got to keep pushing on keep pushing on because you will get there eventually if you're good enough and that is a big if but even if you don't get to formula one you might get to touring cars british touring cars or a local touring car you might get to tcr you might even just be able to go out at the weekend and work on a formula ford and that might be something you really enjoy and in many ways that's more fun than formula one but you can you've got to give it a go if you don't try you will never know you will never succeed if you don't try so you have to give it a go and you don't get destroyed by the first rejection the fifth or the tenth because Formula One, everybody's got into Formula One has been rejected a hundred times for something. So you've just got to keep giving it a go. And then the door, you'll suddenly find it that if you're good enough, the door will end up opening for you. And that doesn't go just for being an engineer or a mechanic or a driver. It goes for if you want to be a press officer, or if you want to do any job vaguely related to Formula One. And if you don't try, you won't get there. I won't say the worst thing you, you, people are going to say to you is no, you're going to hear a lot worse than that but they're just words, you know, you've just got to keep trying and persistence and dedication are two just absolutely essential talents in motor racing. You have to be willing to work it and get there. And actually the skills you learn on the way will be skills that you can use in many different roles in life. A lot of stuff I've learned from motor racing, I know actively apply in politics and that is you by putting in that work, by going up through that long grind of a process, you will get to where you want to be if you're up to it. I don't know about you, Steph, but I thoroughly enjoyed that chat. It was great hearing Sam's stories, advice and insights. He's had such a varied career across motorsport, behind the wheel in his earlier years and as a journalist covering a range of series now. Really fascinating to hear from him. Yeah, that was such an interesting and entertaining conversation. Sam is hilarious. Um, Sam also spoke passionately about how much work there is to be done by those within F1 to open up the sport. And whilst we do have initiatives like F1 in schools that are doing a brilliant job, there are still so many more opportunities to bring in new audiences that we really need to take advantage of. And looking beyond that, F1 is such an amazing sport with so much to offer to the wider society. I couldn't agree more. I found the diversity part of the conversation particularly interesting too. Hearing about his experiences throughout his career and the concern for F1 specifically when Lewis retires. And whilst of course I don't think the topic of diversity should fall on Lewis's shoulders alone, he is so instrumental to this movement and I do share Sam's concerns especially as we are at the point in F1 and in society as a whole where people are so polarised. Definitely. Even Sam said that he noticed those racist and hurtful comments on some of his YouTube work last year, which is just horrific. Hopefully, through the We Races One campaign, the Hamilton Commission and other similar initiatives, we will see change in our sport that is being driven by individuals, teams and organisations across the industry. And as Sam said, this change needs to be across race, gender, sexual orientation and more. Thankfully, we are heading in the right direction. It's just a case of keeping the momentum up. 
Thank you to Sam for joining us for this episode. You can find him on Twitter at NorthHeartsSam and on IG as well at SamS.Collins, but we'll pop that in the description box for the episode too. As for us, you can keep up to date with us on Instagram at WeAreDrivenByDiversity. Thank you for tuning in for another episode. Next week, we'll be speaking to Richard Morris, racing driver and co-founder of Racing Pride. So we'll catch you then. Thank you.